Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. How many of you still write letters? Three. Not bad. Yeah. You know, I get pretty excited when I get a card or a letter from someone because I know, I understand what they went through in producing this thing. And uh, they had to find paper, right? Or the perfect card that says just what they want. They had to find a pen to write it with, which is sometimes a miracle in itself. Then finding just the right words to say and the correct punctuation. I mean, come on, it's, it's tough to write a letter. It takes time and forethought. And then finding just the right words. Not only speaking of, how about the cost of stamps? Oh, or it gets you to the point where it's like, just forget about it, I'm going to text. So, but Paul, he didn't give up on writing letters to his churches that he had established all around the Empire of Rome. And after Paul had made his missionary journeys where he established his churches, he would write to them, usually in response to a letter that they had written to him, asking for some kind of encouragement or correction. Um, how about just news, getting news to them? What's happening in my life? This is what I want you all to know, is what Paul would write. And in these letters, he would correct false beliefs. He would warn about false teachers. He would encourage them in their daily walk with the Lord. And he would correct, um, he would encourage them, he would answer the questions that they would write to him. And sometimes he would even discipline the believers. So in Acts 18, it tells us about when Paul started the Corinthian church. It was a notoriously wicked city, very wealthy in commerce, and it was a military security because it was also a port city on the sea. Corruption flourished in Corinth. And being a new Christian, I'm sure it was pretty tough to walk the right way in Corinth. So Paul tells us of his visit in 1 Corinthians 2, and it's a peek into uh, Paul's personality and who he was. It says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with trembling. They assumed that it was because he was just really getting weary of being beaten and being stoned, being in prison. And Fran said last week that some of his troubles where he was presented before beasts to be eaten. He had, he was flogged, you know, that 39 stripes, beatings and stonings and physical problems, physical health. You know, he was a human being going around helping those little churches, those little fledgling churches that he had started. And all because of the call that God had put on his life. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was a humble person. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, neither are mine, and 
possibly neither are yours, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's abilities or man's wisdom, but on God's power. He wanted them totally sold out to God, not to man. He wanted them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And Paul was a courageous and persistent and driven man when it came to fulfilling the call that God had put on his life on that road to Damascus. He had no other reason for living except in spreading the gospel everywhere that he journeyed. And he said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. That was his calling. But his desire was for me to die as gain and meet my master, meet my savior. Paul had three visits to Corinth, and he wrote four letters. And as Steve pointed out, some of those letters were lost. You know, it's like when you tell me something's lost, what, what was it? What did it say? I'm kind of curious. What am I missing? But they have the two, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And while in Damascus, excuse me, in Ephesus, on his third missionary journey, Paul received reports concerning problems in the Corinthian church. He was um, living in Ephesus at the time. And these included jealousy and divisiveness, sexual immorality, failure to discipline members, disorder in worship, misuse of spiritual gifts, and misunderstandings about the resurrection. These were young churches. They needed to learn how to do church, how to be a Christian, how to walk the Christian walk. You know, I can honestly say that I've been in many churches and were there uh, were many problems, some big and some small, but all had to be dealt with and worked through. And that's why we're called the family of God, right? All families, your own families at home, you will eventually have or run into a problem. And it's usually never about the problem. It's usually the bigger issue is how we respond to that problem, what we do with it, and the outcome of that problem. So this is Paul's. Uh, the reports were distressing to Paul, for he had a feeling of he had this this feeling of apostolic uh, authority, and he also had a fatherly love for those churches that he had planted. He felt this fatherly attachment to those people. And they were asking for his help in a letter. They were asking him for help with some of the issues that they were experiencing. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 13. And it backs up into one. There's no there's no there's no um, dividing line there. It goes runs right into it. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy 
For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see that you would, if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Any, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So when Paul wrote his reply, he was sincere, genuine, intentional, and he was loving. But he wanted to correct anything that was a problem for his little church. And um, so he wanted to celebrate that with them and share their joy and hope and news of repentance of this person, someone who had caused great harm to his church. The goal of 2 Corinthians 2 was to boldly address that sin and its consequences and to initiate forgiveness and establish restoration of the sinner back to the body of Christ. Paul wanted them to succeed. He wanted them to walk a good Christian life. Now we are not told which of the two possibilities that Paul was referring to. There was one uh, case in 1 Corinthians 5 where he had to deal with um, a sexually immoral brother in the church, and, um, and it could have been that that he's referring to here about being grieved and sorrowed. Or it could have been the problem spoken of in 2 Corinthians 7. Apparently there was a man who was personally attacking um, Paul's authority, causing division within the church. And, um, and so the church was asked by Paul to discipline this man within the body. And so straight up, Paul says, the reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. They did obey, and now that person had repented. And Paul counsels them, the punish inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So Paul was fretting about the, this man's um, salvation and his response to such severe discipline and that he might even become so broken and bitter that he would actually leave the church, but more so that he would walk away from God, leaving him wide open for Satan's attack. And we need to be constantly aware that the devil is a predator and we are his prey. But what we need to remember more is that as children of God, we are also armed and dangerous. And Satan just can't seem to remember the end of his story so he needs constant reminding by us, doesn't he? The church has a duty to discipline sin within the church body. 
but it has to be done from a place of love with the goal of repentance. That means turning around from the sin, going the other way, going God's way, and restoration, welcoming him back to the fold. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know, sin... Um, outside or inside the church is like yeast. It, it infiltrates the whole batch and it gets all over everybody. It just can't maintain its boundaries. It's got to spread. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry, I got caught. But heavenly sorrow, godly sorrow says, I have sinned against God and you. I repent. Would you please forgive me with sincerity and a genuineness that they have repented, turned away from the sin and back to God. Paul was not afraid to confront the bad fruit in order that good fruit could come from it. Like a father... Paul was protecting the health of his church and the people in it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace by those who have been trained by it. Some versions actually say the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases God. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So when it comes to overseeing and correcting and teaching the churches, he planted all across the Roman Empire. I see three things were at the top of Paul's list when he ministers to, to those little churches. One is relationship, two is restoration, and three is righteousness. Relationship, to let you know how much I love you, he says. That's the reason why he wrote that letter. That's verse four. You know, you can only speak deep things if you have an intact, trustworthy, and loving relationship. In Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. The relationship comes first. <clears throat> so restoration. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him and forgive in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. You know, wolves, oh, they will pick the weak and the wounded for their dinner. And same with Satan. He picks out the young, the weak, the wounded. They don't, for, he, for they don't pick, put up as much of a, uh, as a fight as those who are equipped and established in the faith, experienced, and are strong. The Living Bible puts it like this. The whole Bible is given to us by inspiration from God. 
and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us to do what is right. It is God's way of making us well prepared at every point, fully equipped to do good to everyone. Isaiah 32:17, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. So the Bible tells us the fruit of righteousness, excuse me, the Bible tells us that apart from God, we have no righteousness of our own. And compared to, excuse me, God's righteousness, man, our righteousness is like stinky, filthy rags. That's Isaiah 64, 6. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 10. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law. Now that doesn't mean that they threw out the law. They didn't. But Jesus fulfilled the law. And he made a new covenant with us. He only had two things on it. Love God, love others. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believed. There is no difference. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. That means just as if I've never sinned. Well, freely by his grace. And his grace is God's undeserved favor. Bless you, my brother. Thank you. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood. That's Romans 3, 21 through 25. So now I'm going to read the rest of 2 Corinthians. Two, fourteen through 17. Now, oh, first he talks about his friend Titus. Okay, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Paul relied on his friendships. Oh my goodness, Timothy, Titus. Titus was like a son to him. And a lot of times, Paul was not handwriting these letters. His friends, Titus and Timothy and Sosthenes, they were writing these letters. And even a few times, Paul would sign his name and he would say, see, I'm signing my own name, you know, to make sure that you know it's from me. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ. Christ's, he owns it, triumphal procession. How about we start that again? But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, 
to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. And that's what was happening. A lot of these uh, false prophets were actually asking for money to, for their spiritual gifts. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. That's beautiful. How about the next one? Oh, perfect. Christ, who gives us his righteousness, now leads us in triumphal procession before his Father and the whole world. Paul is painting a word picture here with the idea of a victory parade. A parade was common when a victorious general came home from battle with his troops and the spoils of war. And the pageantry was in honor of game territory for Rome, or there was victory in defending territory owned by Rome. <clears throat> the parade starts with officials in the front, followed by trumpeteers. Here comes Jerry. Followed by spoils taken from the conquered land. And next, a white bull for sacrifice, followed by many captives in chains. They carried a special fragrant incense that would fill the air. And then came the musicians. And at length, the conquering general appeared on a, on a chariot pulled by a white horse. And then came his family, followed by the victorious soldiers. And as they moved through the streets, the people shouted, Triumph! 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 You know, we have a Christian victory parade. Mm -hmm. Hallelujah. It says that Christ leads us as captives to the kingdom of God. And our victories are won by being in Christ not anything of ourselves. And Jesus is the one riding the white horse. For our Savior has won the victory over sin and death. And his victory is our victory. And his victory is eternal, once and for all. And we shout, what do we shout? Triumph, triumph, triumph. And when we get to heaven, we'll be saying, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So I want to leave you with three questions that, that even, you know, they were kind of resounding in my head uh, for a while. And one was, what would Paul say to us? What do you think that he his letter would contain for us to the little church at Coastline? What issues in our body would he have to address or to confront? And would we be found obedient to God? Those are questions that, that came up in my mind. And I thought, you know, Paul, in his loving way, would address us with love first, forgiveness, restoration, and he would be protecting our righteousness our right standing with God. And so, if you have something to comment on, I would love it. Yes, Fran. I'm really glad that you pointed out uh, that 
he was acting uh, as a father. Because I think the tone when, when I'm reading those scriptures and it's correction, I immediately default into something else. And I don't see that. All of a sudden, the relationship's not there. It's just, you know. So thank you for bringing that at the very beginning so that I could look at it in a, in a more healthy way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, someone, as a matter of fact, it was uh, the pastor from uh, Crescent City, and I was just overhearing his conversation. He said, if you have to have a hard, a hard talk with someone, you better have a hard relationship with that person because it can be misconstrued, misunderstood. And so make sure that your relationship is intact before you um, enter into correction or deep areas. Anyone else? Well, my, my mother who was raised in Texas always used a Texas phrases, and she was well known. They lived in Southern Humboldt for many years. <clears throat> and she was well known when she had to have a talk with someone. Her first line was, I got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kind of makes me feel like she was whittling them down to her size. Yeah. <laughs> Bless her heart. Yeah, always lead with love. That's That was Paul's method. He led with love first. And then he went into those areas that were problematic for them. Anyone else? It's just so key to, to be like that. I'm sorry? It's so key to be loving when you're trying to, you know, deal with a difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. In, in so many, so many aspects of life. What does he tell us? Put all bitterness and malice away from you. Yeah. Don't bring it. Don't bring it with you, because you know what? You are to God the aroma of Christ. That should be the smell that permeates the air when you when you get into it. You know the the incense that that they carried in this Roman triumphal pageantry. That was a very special incense that they made for victories only and it went before everyone and and the people were standing on the sides you know and up in the uh, coliseums they smelled that they associated that smell with a roman victory and so with us too when when we enter a room we are associated with christ we better look like him smell like him talk like him Everything will go so much smoother for us. And, uh, you know, I mean, it says that to one, it's death. To the one who's perishing, we smell like death. But to the one who God loves and, and they're walking the walk, we smell like life, sweet life. And so um, any, anything else? Carla. As a letter writer, I appreciated all your comments about, um, you know, choosing the right words. And I think that, you know, besides having a relationship, uh, words that I might share with one person to have a conversation might be completely different vocabulary than I would have with another person. Yes. That person has to be able to have the same message that you're trying to impart. And for some people, 
it's one set of vocabulary that they can relate to or examples they can relate to, and with another person it's completely different. So I think that's really important too. Good point. Yes. However, Paul, you know, he, every letter that he wrote uh, in the epistles, they all, you know, you could tell Paul was writing them, but each one was a little bit different, addressing a little different problem, a little different relationship. He, you know, that's that's what you know. I love that because you know, I'm a I'm a letter keeper. I keep a shoebox full of my kids' letters, letters from the body of Christ encouraging me, and my son has a totally different way of communicating with me than my daughter. And I have a totally different way of communicating with my son as opposed to my daughter. She's ooey gooey, lovey, caramel, different way that he loves me. And he knows he can tease me, you know, because I love it. I love to be teased and I love to tease. And so anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that um, we learn from you. You have so much love for us. And, uh, and we know that full well. Lord God, I just thank you for each person here and ask that you would give them such a special day, a special day of joy and laughter and love and freedom, Lord God. That's one of the songs um, that Jerry wrote or sang today was about freedom. Oh, break those chains, you know. Let us be free not only to communicate but develop those things we need, which is relationship and restoration and righteousness in all of our dealings with others today. And, uh, and so, Lord, we just give it all to you, for you are our all in all. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.